Welcome to The Lorraine Murphy Show. If you're anything like me, you want a successful, abundant business, epic energy, a growth mindset, vibrant health, and beautiful relationships. And this podcast sets out to help us achieve all of that together. I've been in the entrepreneurship arena for almost a decade now and have mentored hundreds of other business owners. So I know what goes on behind the scenes and what it takes to succeed. This podcast shares the tips, tricks, learnings, and lessons I lean on in order to blend the different facets of my life as an entrepreneur, author, wife, and mama to two gorgeous little humans. Let's jump in to today's episode. This week's episode features a conversation with Bold Darling member Georgie Dent. Georgie is a writer, author, former lawyer, and prominent advocate for women, gender equality, children, and families. She is the executive director of The Parenthood, a not-for-profit parent advocacy group that campaigns for paid parental leave and access to childhood, education, and care. Georgie is the best-selling author of Breaking Badly, a memoir that was published by Affirm Press in May 2019 to critical acclaim. This book shares her account of her nervous breakdown, which is also the topic of our conversation. I felt it was really important to address this topic having read Georgie's book because I know both firsthand from my own experience and also from the experience of many of my mentees and Bold Darling community that life in business and just life generally can be really, really tough. And I'm really glad that Georgie and grateful to Georgie for being willing to come on the show and talk about her experience because I think she has many, many lessons and nuggets for all of us. And the most of which is that we are never, ever alone in the experience that we are going through. In myself and Georgie's conversation, we cover what tendencies and patterns she can see that hinted at her challenges later on, perfectionism and how that manifested in her life, what life was like when she was approaching her breakdown, and then also the experience of the breakdown itself her road to recovery and what helped, what the turning point was when she realized that she was finally starting to get better, her biggest learnings from the breakdown, what Georgie would say to any other woman who might be struggling with her mental health right now, and also how to support someone who's having mental health challenges. I would love to bring you my conversation now with Georgie. And I please do remember, if you are finding life challenging right now, you are not alone and you can be well and happy with the right support for you. So let's bring on myself and Georgie's conversation. Hello, Georgie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really, really excited to have this conversation because, yeah, I picked up a copy of your book, which is called Breaking Badly, How I Worried Myself Sick. I think it was about three months ago, I I sent you a text and said, hey, I'm reading your book. And I just loved it. And I think the topic that it's about is, as you and I have just been chatting before we hit record, it's a really pertinent, unfortunately, topic for a lot of people. So yes, thank you for coming on to talk about it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really keen to talk. Yeah, everything that you share in the book. So just so everyone can get to know you. So you and I have known each other for quite a few years now, back from your kind of journo days and my first business days. And we recently reconnected because you joined Bold Darling this year, which has been so good to have you as part of the group. And I guess I was actually completely unaware of this whole story that we're about to talk about today. So would you mind for everyone listening, just to give them a bit of an orientation, can you give us a snapshot of Georgie to date, if that's not too big an ask? 
Okay, so Georgie, today (laughs) I am 40 years old. I've got three daughters who are 6, 10 and 12. I run a not-for-profit advocacy organisation called The Parenthood and basically we campaign for better paid parental leave and access to early education and care and family-friendly workplaces. But how I sort of came to be in this position is that I grew up in a little town that lots of people actually will have heard about this year called Lismore. Yes. And my mum and dad still live in Lismore. The community remains completely ravaged by the floods. That's a different story. But so I grew up in Lismore. I'm the middle of three children. I've got an older sister and a younger brother. I had a very uneventful, privileged upbringing, very middle class, very stable, had a lot of wonderful opportunities. I went to boarding school in Brisbane for high school and I stayed in Brisbane to do uni. And at uni, I studied business and law. And after finishing uni, I moved to Sydney for my first job, my first sort of full-time job, and that was as a lawyer in a big firm here in Sydney. And I was there for about 18 months before I had a complete nervous breakdown, which is what I write about in the book. So the sort of two pivotal things, I suppose, from a health perspective, when I was 19, a uni student in Brisbane, I was diagnosed with two fairly unpleasant medical conditions. So the first was endometriosis. Mm. And, you know, I have to say, so this was, you know, 21 years ago now, and endometriosis certainly wasn't a subject that is as sort of spoken about now. And certainly not for me as a 19-year-old, I'd never heard of it. The only time I'd heard of it was when this gynecologist said to me, you've got this and we need to operate. And so I had three operations in six weeks, Mm. which was quite horrific and quite traumatic. And very invasive. I've had one of those day procedures myself in the past and, yeah, it's it's invasive. It's not fun. Yeah, it is. It's invasive and particularly I think when you're 19 and you're not, you know, it was invasive and I found that traumatic and I was quite unwell. The reason that I went and saw the gynecologist was that I was in horrific pain a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and so part of that was endometriosis. But after I had those surgeries, I was still in an extraordinary amount of pain and I wasn't very well and then that led me to go and see a gastroenterologist and I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease which is a really unpleasant autoimmune disease. I describe it as being similar to barley belly but without the holiday in Bali. So I was just a pretty sick person but I was determined that I would put my illness in a sort of different world and so I kind of maintained this dual existence where I went to uni and had my life as a sort of 19-year-old and I always took the medication. I had all of the procedures. I had all of the blood tests. I did all of the things that my doctors said, but I tried to maintain a sort of parallel existence that my health was in one corner and the rest of my life was in the rest. And that sort of worked until I moved to Sydney and started a full-time job because I just didn't have anywhere to hide anymore. Mm. And so I became physically really unwell But that was overlaid with also being mentally really unwell and Mm. that was sort of a bit of a vicious cycle and hence I had a complete nervous breakdown at the age of 25. Wow. So that happened, Georgie, that happened 18 months into starting the role at the legal firm. Have I got that right? You said that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And what was life like then? So obviously I know you had met Nick, you were with your beautiful now husband Nick back then. So can you just describe what was life like when you were at the law firm? Just set the scene for us. Yeah, well, so I moved to Sydney with a group of quite close girlfriends from Brisbane who we'd all finished double degrees at the same time and we rented this house in Darlinghurst. There were five of us in this five-bedroom house and I had met Nick, so he's now my husband, but he was then my boyfriend and he was still at uni and I was starting out. So we didn't live together that first year. I lived with girlfriends 
And, you know, on paper, my life looked quite good at Mm. that point. You know, I had quite a fancy job. I lived in a gorgeous house. I had gorgeous friends. I had a really nice boyfriend, you know, had a really lovely family. But inside, I was, things were nowhere near as rosy. Mm. I was really, really stressed all the time and I was really sick. So, between like after being diagnosed with Crohn's disease, I didn't ever get admitted to hospital unless it was for a planned procedure. But yes. in the, the 18 months that I was working in the law firm, I ended up having to sort of go to hospital three or four times in that first year just because the pain was horrific. So I was sort of physically more unwell than I'd ever been. Mm. And that really created a lot of pressure because I was terrified of being sick and I was really ashamed of it. So I hated having to call into the law firm and say, I'm in hospital and I can't come in today. And you're trying Um, to prove yourself. You're in your first year of your career trying to prove yourself, show that you're cut out. I mean, I'd imagine law is pretty fast paced and potentially, I mean, depending obviously in the law firm you go to, but quite aggressive and it's a big role. It was a big role and it was definitely a competitive environment. Mm. But I think what I have said to a few different people, and it's an observation that I maintain, I definitely didn't have my nervous breakdown because I worked in a law firm. I think Mm. I was right for having a nervous breakdown in whatever workplace I went to. Potentially a law firm, a commercial law firm might have accelerated my demise. That makes total sense. The expectations, you know, the hours were long and there was pressure, but I certainly created the most, in hindsight, I created a huge amount of the pressure that ultimately sort of led to me falling apart. Yeah. And looking back, can you see the specific tendencies or patterns that, to use your language, that made you ripe for having a nervous breakdown? So I had always been really hard on myself. Mm. I remember like one time when I was at uni, mum and dad were going overseas to like see my sister who was traveling and they left and they were like, you know, gee, live a little. Why don't you like fail an exam or like don't hand in an assignment? Or I was really, really hard on myself. And I was that way through high school. It wasn't just at uni, but I suppose I can now say, I didn't recognize this at the time, but I was really operating from a place of nothing was ever good enough. And I always felt like I had to do more. And for me, that was probably one of the really difficult aspects of having the illnesses that I did was because it sort of compounded that. I felt this sense of I need to work even harder because I've got all these sort of flaws. I had really internalized my health conditions as almost like a character flaw or a deficiency. And so I really felt like I had a lot to prove and nothing I ever did was good enough. So, mm-hmm. you know, even when I got these amazing jobs, you know, because law firm graduate jobs were difficult to get and cl- summer clerkships, which you did before you got the big, you know, before you got full-time work. And I would put myself under a huge amount of pressure. And then even when I got them and I got multiple offers, it's not, it didn't ever feel like, oh, good, okay, well, I've done that. There was mm-hmm. just this constant sense of nothing you've ever done is good enough. Um, and what would you do? What, what is that? Is it perfectionism? What is it? It is perfectionism. Yep. I mean, that's probably the most apt description of it. And I guess it is also just sort of having a low, I mean, perfectionism also entails this, but having a real low sense of self-worth. You know, I was really someone who attached a lot of worth to external factors. Mm. You know, like, did I get offered this particular job? You know, what grade did I get on that assignment? Really using those sort of external benchmarks as the indication for my worth as a person. Yeah, makes total which sense. Which is very much part of the perfectionist. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, for those of us who haven't had a nervous breakdown. The light has just gone out. Is it really annoying if I turn it back on? I didn't even notice it. Yeah, go, okay. go, go. Do do we need to do that time? We can edit this. So it's probably really annoying. No, that that's fine. I didn't even notice. Section. I feel like your Zoom is adjusting for it. Like it's. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't even notice. So yeah, but if you need to change, that's fine. Okay, so I'm going to go back to that question. So for those of us who haven't had nervous breakdowns, can you describe what is the experience like? Like how? Because I feel like it's kind of something we joke about. Like I know, like for where I'm from in Ireland, like we joke like, "Oh, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown if this keeps happening." Like it's kind of it's a bit of a joke. And I can imagine for anyone going through one, it's not a joke. And also just being fully transparent. I feel like I've had periods in my life where I've gone, is this it? Like, is this the breakdown coming? Like, is this happening? And I think if you've had one, you probably, it's probably unmistakable that this is what is happening. Can you describe like what happened? Like what was the actual, I guess, the mental and physical experience of having, as you say, a total nervous breakdown? Yeah. And look, so it is worth noting that there is no agreed medical definition of what a nervous breakdown is. And, you know, I certainly have used that language um, a lot. I would also probably describe my life raising three children, trying to have a career. Like the whole thing is basically like one nervous breakdown in slow motion. But what the breakdown that I had was sort of more acute. And so, as I said, when I started working in the law firm, my physical health really deteriorated. And I didn't realise at the time, but my mental health was also deteriorating at the same time as my physical health. And so I had been, so probably for the six months before things actually fell apart, and I'll describe what that was like, I was really strung out. I was really thin, which was partly because of Crohn's disease. But, you know, I was I was panicked all the time. I felt, I woke up scared. Like I operated from this place of fear the whole time. I was terrified of everything, which sounds crazy. But at the time, I just kept going. I could sort of, I could cry at the drop of a hat, like anything that happened. I was really fragile. And, but it sort of all came to a head one night when I was in my office and one of the other grads came in to talk to me. And I sort of had this like vertigo attack. Like it felt like I was standing up and it felt like there'd been an earthquake and I kind of had to hold on to my desk and then I like lay down and my colleague went and got one of our other friends and it felt no one else had felt this earthquake, but I had. And it kind of felt like... Can I just ask, was it a stressful conversation you were having? No. No, it wasn't. It was just like, I mean, it was about seven o'clock at night. And the funny thing is like at the time I would have said, oh, well, I wasn't even stressed at all as in, in relative terms. Yes. Yeah. So it wasn't something terrible hadn't happened that Mm. day. It was just a normal day. He was in there and I sort of had this vertigo spell, lay down and they sort of got me water and I felt really unsteady, but I just sort of thought, oh, this will pass. And so they took me downstairs and I got a taxi home and Nick and I were living together at that point in like a tiny 25 square metre apartment. But Nick was studying and also working in Canberra. And so he was commuting. So he wasn't actually home that night. He was staying in Canberra. So I just went home and I quite literally hopped into bed and pulled the doona over my head and thought, you know, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll feel fine. But I woke up the next morning with just the most cracking headache. Like I felt like I had this horrendous hangover and I was in the shower and I was sort of having to try and steady myself mm-hmm. holding onto the tiles. And I just remember thinking the thing that worried me most was not the fact that 
I couldn't actually balance. It was I've got to call work again and say that I'm sick because I just know I'm not going to be able to go to work today. And that was kind of the thing that made me feel the worst, which gives you a little bit of insight into how sort of warped my thinking was and my perspective was at that point. And so I went to the GP that day and it wasn't actually my regular GP. It was a different GP and as a sort of people-pleasing perfectionist, any new person is an opportunity to present as, you know, polished and together. And so I sort of said, oh, you know, I had this vertigo thing. It's very unusual. I feel quite dizzy. But I certainly didn't reveal the extent to how dreadful I was feeling, either emotionally or physically. But I got a referral to go and have a CT scan. And I also got a referral to see an ear, nose and throat specialist because often vertigo, it's vestibular. So, you know, if there was anything there, it would be good to see an ENT. And so I went home and for the next sort of week or two, I tried to just function as usual. Like I tried to go to work. I didn't feel good. I didn't feel steady. And it took me about two weeks before I could even see the ENT. And when I and I had a CT scan, there was nothing on that. Well, I saw the ENT and he was like, look, I think this is probably, you know, you're at a computer the whole time. You do work in a competitive work environment. It's probably sort of a bit of stress. You probably need a break. So you should have a week off work. And I felt sick about that. And honestly, that sort of gave me palpitations in and of itself. I remember being in the taxi, going back to the office, thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to tell them that I need a week off work. But I did take the week off work and I went, I flew back to my parents' place in Lisbon and I was like, right, I'm going to have a week off and I'm going to relax and I'm going to sort myself out. And it just did not happen. It just got worse and worse, which is now, you know, in hindsight, it's not surprising because I then had, I was at home with nothing to do except focus on the fact that I felt dreadful and I needed to kind of work my way through feeling like that. And that's not really how stress or the body likes to work. And so I ended up, I did come back to Sydney and then another sort of week or two later, I just, I took leave without pay from work because I was like, I just couldn't maintain my job and I couldn't pretend anymore that I was okay because I was, the vertigo was bad. My Crohn's was bad. I was just, I was no longer able to put one foot in front of the other and function. And so mm. I ended up spending four months. I moved back in with mum and dad and I spent about four months there, not working, not doing anything except seeing doctors, seeing yoga gurus, acupuncturists, like dietitians, anyone and everyone I saw. And when did the road to recovery begin then? Because it sounds like, and I obviously know from reading the book that there was a lot of like you say, consulting different people and your beautiful mom dragging you along to see yet another specialist or yet another expert. What was this step change? I mean, I talk a lot with mentees when we start to spiral down, whether it's work-related or business-related or whatever, or sorry, work or home-related. What was the thing that started that spiral back up again? Like, when did you start to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm not healed, but I'm starting to go in the right, inverted commas, direction? Yeah, so for me, the turning point was seeing a physician in Lismore who was actually in his very early 70s. So just sort of for context, I really spiralled mentally and physically during those months that I was at home. And I am incredibly grateful and lucky to have had a family who were willing and able to sort of wrap their arms around me in every sense, you know, and I was young enough that I didn't have any you know, I didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have financial responsibilities, and I had a family that could take care of me. Mm -hmm. And I know how incredibly privileged I was and I am to ha have that safety net because it's not something that everybody has. And I've often thought about 
I honestly don't know what I would have done. I don't know what my trajectory would have been like, what my story would have been if, if I didn't have that. But mm. even with the comfort and security of parents who were doing everything to try and look after me and support me, I just was so physically unwell that I genuinely didn't think I was ever going to have a life beyond their living room basically. And that was quite terrifying. Nick and I did stay together, but I tried very hard to convince him that he should find somebody else because, you know, we were 24 at the time. I was like, you know, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You do not need this. Like I am, I was just like, I am a sinking ship. You may as well keep going. And I'm really grateful that he, it's the only time ever in our relationship that he's been right. I will give him that. So I did have, I had a lot of beautiful things in my life. Like I had a beautiful family, but I was so unwell that I could not see a road out. And so I just need to explain that those couple of months were very, very dark. Thank you. And then every time we went for a new appointment, I would have hope at the beginning. Like this was at the beginning of that period. I just believed that there had to be a rational explanation for why this vertigo was happening And every time the test would come back or the doctor or the health person would say, there's no reason for this, I just spiralled and I genuinely started to think that I was imagining it and that therefore I was like, I think I've lost touch with reality because I'm imagining that I feel like this, which is a pretty bad place to be in. So I'd got to the point where I didn't like seeing anybody and I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go to any appointments because it was just too crushing to have a hope and then be disappointed. Anyway, mum dragged me out of the house to go and see this physician and I was so unimpressed and, you know, anyway, we got there and this gorgeous man sat and he had all of my reports, all of my referrals, everything, and he just said, Georgie, I'm so sorry for what's happening to you. This is awful. And just that empathy actually made me cry because none of the people that I'd seen, that all I guess, spoken about me and my condition in like abstract terms, like there's no explanation for this. Whereas he was like, this is happening to you and it's awful. And then he said, look, Georgie, in my experience of treating patients for nearly 50 years, every time someone presents with unexplained physical symptoms, it is always stress. And he said, I'm not saying it's in your head, it's not in your head. And he said, but if there was a physiological, biological explanation for what's happening right now, we would know it because we've done all the tests. Yes, yeah. And he said, I think that you need to see a psychiatrist. I think that you probably need to spend some time in an inpatient facility. And I don't think that we're going to get to the bottom of this without doing that. And, you know, in that moment, I felt such relief. Mm. You know, I just thought, oh, my God, he's right. And I do need to say Stress and anxiety had come up a lot. You know, for me, I'd always known that they were issues. And mum, the whole time I was unwell, was trying to sort of gently say, have you thought about this? And my response to that was, of course I'm anxious because I've lost my balance and I can't function properly. Once we sort out that, then we can deal with me and I won't be stressed. Whereas this was sort of a reframe and it's that thing, you know, I've heard you say that a lot and I've said it myself a lot, like, Sometimes you need a different person to give you a message and it can be the same message that other people around you have said. But this beautiful doctor was the turning point for me and he referred me to a psychiatrist and I went and saw a psychiatrist the next day and they organised for me to go to a 
psychiatric hospital on the Gold Coast. It was a private hospital. It was not remotely glamorous. Like it was incredibly sad and confronting on a lot of levels. But because they had private health insurance, it was free. And it was the lifeline for me that that was the turning point. And that was when I began the spiral upwards again. Mm. But mm. where did that sense of relief come from when the physician said that? It just landed with me that there could be an explanation for this. Because as I said, my biggest fear was that I was imagining these sort of physical symptoms. And when he said that, and he gave me lots of examples, he was like, you know, I have patients with long-standing diabetes and everything can be going really well. And then suddenly all of their levels are out and there's no other reason other than something terrible has happened in their life, you know, like, and it's stress. And he said, I just know stress has a physiological impact on the body. Mm-hmm. So it was relief in that sense that there could be an explanation, but it was also hope, you know, that if there's an explanation for this, then there's also a road to recovery. Mm. I feel like what he also did is he saw you as a human, like he humanised you rather than seeing you as a condition and a a report that they need to come (laughs) figure out. He saw you as a human. I can imagine there's that sense of I've been seen and just how you'd almost like the relief of that, you'd almost collapse under it, just like, you know, that, okay. Yeah, and I can still remember just that sort of being so stunned when he spoke to me like that because, and this is the thing that, you know, as someone that has chronic illness, so I've seen a lot of specialists, I've seen a lot of doctors, and that really was the first time. I have to say since then I've got a couple of specialists who are just the most divine human beings, but in that moment that empathy I had never had from a medical specialist before and it was so powerful because I did I felt like a human I didn't feel like a problem you know and I like I think I write in the book that one of my gastroenterologists early on when I moved to Sydney he sort of said to me he described me as a heart sink patient and I said oh what does that mean and he said oh it means you know your name is on the list of my heart sink because I know that you know nothing ever works for you and it was How funny is it okay for medical f- professionals to speak to someone like that? Like, that's just well, awful. It, like that's the thing, but I had really internalised that as yeah, a sort of yeah, like, yeah. oh, it became I'm a your story patient. then. And, I mean, Nick actually came to that appointment with me and he was a medical student at the time and he just was like, I cannot imagine what is actually wrong with someone that you would say that to your patient. Like even if you think that, even if you say that privately, but to say it to a patient and, and to a so vulnerable guess, patient, you know, you're not talking about someone who's in their most robust of health. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was part of it. Like this doctor seeing me as a human and then giving yeah. me hope that there could be a recovery and a plan. Like you said, a roadmap. You know, mm. we, we need those roadmaps in life. So can you describe your life and career now? So you mentioned that you're running the parenthood. What else can you tell us about your life right now? A bit of a fast forward. Yeah, fast forward. So I guess what I would say is that for me, that time that I spent in a psychiatric hospital was really pivotal and a couple of things happened. A, firstly, I started on medication and I had no, I genuinely didn't believe that medication could fix anyone or how they felt. Like I just Mm. didn't understand it, didn't believe it, had absolutely no qualifications for making that assessment, but just thought that doesn't make sense to me. It did. For me, Medication was a circuit breaker and I needed it and it made me, that that was part of my recovery. Mm. But I also spent that time in rehab. I kind of say it was like, you know, I was a, like you take the car to the mechanic, they lift up the bonnet, they check everything out and then you, you work on it. And that was really what happened to me in rehab and that was like, okay, what is going on here? And I unpicked a whole lot of that sort of 
story that I'd told myself about not being good enough and that story about why I had kind of conceived illness as a sort of flaw that I had to overcome. And I also just had this complete paradigm shift that I think you can only get when you sort of lose everything. And that is that I just, I recognized that I had so many amazing things in my life and I had things that I wanted to, it's like I described kind of like imagine, you know, I've got this wardrobe of absolutely gorgeous dresses and I want to wear them. Like Mm. that was how I sort of felt in rehab. I was like, why am I putting myself through hell? I didn't actually ever want to be a corporate lawyer. And I didn't have people around me who were saying, you need to be a corporate lawyer. I did not have that. Everyone around me was saying, why would you want to work it? Like you don't even like this job. And I just had this total paradigm shift that I was like, you know what, I just have to do what works for me because if it doesn't work for me, it doesn't matter if it's a good job on paper. So I don't want to kind of gloss over and obviously in the book I go into a bit of detail, but there was the medication, there was the therapy, there was also just the sort of reframe about what it is to sort of look after yourself and what I actually wanted. And so I had a very kind of, I would say I had a 12-month gradual return to real life where I just prioritised my physical health and my mental health because I knew that without those things, I literally was going to have nothing. And again, I know how privileged I am that I was able to sort of gradually re-enter work and life. And I ended up getting a job in journalism about a year after I sort of had left rehab and was in much better physical shape. I was ready for full-time work again and I I sort of just cast the net wide but I did get a friend of mine sent an ad for BRW magazine. They were looking for researchers and they wanted to appoint them on three-month contracts. And I was like, oh, always wanted to be a journalist. This would be an awesome thing to do. And I got one of them and then I ended up, that was really how my career in media started. And I loved being a journalist. I loved that job so much because I loved talking to people. I loved writing. I loved asking questions. And I really started writing all the time for the business magazine. And then Nick and I went overseas and we unexpectedly had our first baby over there. So, you know, after all of the, I had had sort of six operations for endometriosis. I still have Crohn's disease. I'm still on lots of medication we were sort of told falling pregnant would not happen for us. And, of course, I fell pregnant literally, you know, three minutes after we got married. So we had our first baby overseas and I started a blog because that's what mums did back then. (laughs) And then we moved back to Sydney and I got my job back at BRW magazine four days a week, which I loved. But I just sort of, while I was there, I gradually became really interested in the sort of gender picture and why things weren't as sorted as I had hoped and sort of naively believed they were. And so that was, I guess, the next kind of turning point in my career where I became really focused on advocacy and reporting around gender equity. Mm-hmm. And two other children later, I've done lots of different things. I've written for Marie Claire. I've had a newspaper column. I obviously wrote my book. I've spent a long time at Women's Agenda and I'm still a contributor yes. there but I was an editor there and that was a huge break for me and I was offered that job while I was on maternity leave with our middle daughter Lulu. Marina Go, who had started Women's Gender, approached me. I know, she's amazing and she basically said, because Angela Priestley, who's the founding editor, she was going on maternity leave with her first baby and Marina asked if I would be the acting editor while she went away and she you know, Marina said to me at the very first coffee meeting, she said, look, you've got two little kids. I know that childcare is an absolute nightmare. I know you probably won't even be able to get it, let alone afford it. How can we design the job 
so that you can do it. Because I know, she said, you know, I know you can do this job, but we just need to design it so it works. And that was the biggest gift. Wow. How many women would love to be asked that question? Exactly. And that really is partly what has led to the job I do now at the parenthood because we're sort of advocating for the policy changes so that that is the norm, not Mm. the exception. Because I know how lucky I was to have that. And really, I was only able to have that because Marina had done it. You know, Mm. she had worked with little children. Her dad moved down from the Blue Mountains at one point to be their nanny because they could, you know, trying to afford a nanny was just not possible. And yet that was kind of the critical leap that she needed to keep going with her career and she gave it to me and she gave it to Angela and I love you know Tala and at Women's Agenda are doing it with their team now and so I know how things can be like I know how possible it is to have a really fulfilling productive working life while also having a family and being a, a parent and so that's sort of partly how I ended up at the parenthood in a sort of formal advocacy role because we just need to do better. We need to do better for women, for children, for families. Mm. And so now I'm sort of, that's the kind of mission that I'm on at the parenthood. Amazing. What a journey. What have been your biggest lessons? Like if we subscribed, if you subscribe to the, what doesn't break you makes you stronger and every everything is, there's a silver lining to every cloud and all the things. What do you think have been your biggest learnings from the breakdown? Like, is there on some level, are you, are you glad it happened? I am glad that it happened. Yes, yeah. because I maintain that had I not sort of fallen apart as spectacularly, like I could not physically continue, had that not happened, I can imagine that I may have just teetered along the version, like teetered along at sort of Mm. burnout for my whole life. I genuinely believe that. I think that probably having the illnesses that I did meant that I physically fell apart in a way that forced me to rethink things. And I think I write in the book that that is one of the things that sort of crystallizes in the very dark, like hitting rock bottom. The benefit is the perspective that you get when you're down there. Mm. And that was really for me that like looking up and seeing that I had this sort of life I wanted to live and then recognizing that so many of the things that I had worried about were ridiculous. You know, like I was my own biggest enemy in creating this narrative about what I had to do instead of actually being like, what do I want to do? You know, and so I think that I am really grateful. I don't think I would have turned things around the way that I did had I not completely broken. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But I also say to people that you do not have to break completely to start being sensible. Um, about how you feel and what's happening and Mm. you know if the narrative in your head is this is so hard and I'm not this is not working you really need to listen to that because I knew that for a really long time and I ignored it and list actually tuning in and listening to your intuition and to what is actually what you're feeling is never a bad idea And my next question for you was actually, if if someone is listening to this conversation, and I would imagine for some and sending love to those listeners, this is quite an activating conversation because maybe they're recognizing elements of your story and their own experience right now. Is there anything else you would say to them? I think that advice you've just shared is beautiful and incredibly helpful. Is there anything else you would want to say to someone who may be in that position right now? Yes, I would like to say that to anybody who's listening who resonates with this, you are not alone Mm. because I know that I shared my story anonymously through Mamma Mia back sort of 10 years ago and that was kind of how it came to be that I wrote a book about my ah, breakdown. Okay. But 
I started, I wrote about it anonymously at first and then, and the response that it got was phenomenal. Like there were hundreds of comments in 24 hours from people who said, oh my gosh, this is me or that's my daughter or this is my niece. And what I can say now, having spoken at a lot of events about this, having written about it at length, having written a book, I am contacted at least every single week by somebody who is in this space right now. And I'm always struck by the fact that it's invisible. I only know that there are that many people struggling because they write me messages. And if you look at my, you know, the private correspondence, I know how many people are having a hard time. But I also know that it's really easy to believe that no one is having a hard time and that everyone has got things sorted because that's what we see. But so I would just say to anyone who's listening to this, please know that you're not alone if this is you. And also please know that it is absolutely possible to change the story. And whether that is going and seeing a GP and talking to them about how you're feeling and maybe getting a mental health care plan, whether it's talking to your partner honestly about how you're feeling, all of these things I know are incredibly scary. I know that even as someone who had a nervous breakdown, when I have had, you know, because Lord knows it has not been a straight line Mm. since I had my breakdown. I know what it's like when you're going through a difficult patch and I resist telling my husband that I'm struggling because it's never nice. I hate saying to my GP, oh, I think I need another mental health care plan. I really need to go and see a psychologist because it's scary. But what I would say is that the only thing that is scarier than reaching out and asking for help is not reaching out and asking Mm. for help. And feeling like you're suffering in silence. And I just want to echo what you said, my dear, around the I actually wrote a couple of words down just the very start of our conversation in my notebook. And I said, you know, it's appearances versus reality. As you said, you had the picture postcard life of the, you know, young, you know, on the rise corporate lawyer living in Darlinghurst with her friends and her, you know, handsome, great husband or boyfriend. And I think that's the important thing to remember is that we think that people who are having mental health challenges are you know, dragging themselves around the street, wearing baggy clothes and sobbing all the time. Like I know from my experience of mental health challenges a couple of years ago. And like you said, it's not a straight line. Like you still have dips where you feel like, oh, I'm going back there. But it's the people that you least expect are struggling the most. So I would just say, yeah, I would love to echo that and what you said there as well. Yes. All right, my love. Thank you so much for joining. Do you feel like there's anything we missed? Any last thoughts you'd like to share? The only thing that I was going to add was about if you're listening to this and you're thinking about a friend or a sister or someone in your world who you think is having a hard time, my top tip for approaching someone who's having a really difficult time is by making yourself vulnerable. It is really difficult to say to someone that you're not coping. Yes, yes. It's a lot easier to tell somebody if they're also being honest with you about the things that that you're struggling with. You know, it's one of the little things like I always say that if you're going to visit a new friend who's just had a baby, do not put makeup on. Go and look, <laughs> look as tired as you can because that will make them feel better. If you turn up looking polished and perfect, so true. it's going to make them feel more isolated because it's just not what that, you know, that those early weeks look like. And it's the same thing. If there's someone that you want to have, you know, if you think somebody is struggling, I promise you that opening up about the ways that you're struggling is going to be you'll create a better opportunity to have a meaningful conversation about what's actually happening. I love that. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. So the book is called Breaking Badly, How I Worried Myself Sick. I'll pop a link in the show notes as well. And can I just say again, and yeah, I think you know what I'm going to say. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being so vulnerable. Thank you for writing that book. The fact that you're continuing three years after the book actually was published to get the response that you're getting, it's just 
such a testament to how you told your story. So thank you from all of us. Oh, thank you. And thanks for having me on. I do, I sort of wish that my book didn't resonate the way that it does, but because it does, I feel grateful that I sort of, that I did write it and I hope that it is useful. Yeah. Thank you for all the work you're doing on the childcare front as well. It's very, very, very much needed as we both talked about in the past as well. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Georgie. There you have it. The brilliant, articulate, intelligent, and all round brilliant human being that is Georgie Dent. You can find out more about Georgie on her website, Georgie, which is G-E-O-R-G-I-E dent.com and connect with her on Instagram at Georgie Dent underscore. And to find out more about the work of The Parenthood, visit the website at theparenthood.org.au or you can find it on Instagram at The Parenthood. And please do remember, you are never, ever alone. And please do reach out to someone that you trust or a brilliant organization like Lifeline if you are finding this episode to be activating for you. And of course, brilliant first stop is always your GP as well. So sending love and looking forward to joining you again for next week's episode. Please do remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't ever have to miss an episode. I am always keen to hear your thoughts, questions, and requests for future topics on what I share here on the show. So please do reach out via my website, lorrainemurphy.com.au or connect with me on Instagram at lorrainemurphymentor. I would also love if you could rate and review the podcast as it helps even more brilliant listeners like you find the show. Thank you so much again for listening this week. Thank you.